Uh, go with me, if you would, or as we always say, to uh, Matthew chapter 27. We're going to actually start uh, in verse 47, and we're going to go through a fairly significant amount in terms of verses, but in a relatively short period of time. We're going to go from the arrest of Jesus all the way to his crucifixion. Obviously, leave the resurrection for next week. And even though this covers quite a number of verses, it really leaves a lot out. And part of that is due to the fact that Matthew is, as we said before, a tax collector. He tends to give you just sort of the salient points. Some of you old enough might remember the old phrase, just the facts, ma'am, which has actually been attributed to Joe Friday, Sergeant Joe Friday. Turns out he never actually said those words exactly. But nevertheless, uh, there is just, a, just the facts, ma'am. And as we go through this today, you're going to notice a couple of things, and that is we learn other aspects of what we're covering by reading the other Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. So I'm going to try to fill in some gaps. This is familiar territory. Anybody that's ever seen the life of Jesus on film, the Passion of the Christ, this is all kind of straightforward. And it was fortunate this week that while I was doing interviews, one of the interviews I was doing was on this book, Jesus on Trial. I said, how fortuitous, because this is all about basically Matthew 26 and 27. So I actually will pull a little bit of that at the end just so that we can maybe learn a little bit more. And I recommend this book because you may have a friend or a coworker, maybe even a family member has got a legal background and they're really kind of skeptical about the gospel. This is um, actually a series of messages given by James Montgomery Boyce, no longer alive, and Philip Ratkin, who is the president of Wheaton College. And these were actual sermons that were given at the time at 10th Presbyterian Church in sort of an evangelistic way. And so if you're looking for a book to hand to a lawyer, get them thinking about the gospel and looking at all the uh, legal problems with the trial of Jesus, which we'll get in today, I think you'll find that helpful as well. One last note, and I know Fred will say it later. After we're done here, there's going to be a funeral in here, so they want us to clear out pretty quickly. It's hard to get us to clear out, but I think today we'll try to see if we can do it a little faster. So with that, I'm going to keep things moving and turn with me to uh, Matthew 26, and we're going to look again at something that we have seen before. And that is, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, uh, with the free, chief priests and the elders of the people. And of course, the indication here is, is I'm going to betray Jesus and he is the person I will kiss. And so we see here that even though we know that Judas was going to betray him, nevertheless, it's still pretty jarring to read this, or if you've ever seen it on film, it's still just hard to believe somebody has traveled with him for three years and then turns his back on him as well. Armed with uh, individuals, which, as you notice, Jesus said, this is not necessary uh, because you're um, not like you're coming against a robber with swords and clubs. Uh, I sat in the temple teaching, you did not seize me. And in some respects, the arrest is typical in terms of what was sometimes done to try to remove troublemakers or social revolutionaries. But he again points out, you could have arrested me at any point, but they were fearful of how the crowds would have reacted. The crowd was probably not a Roman guard. The best evidence is it was the temple guard that was actually put together by the chief uh, priest. Um, he also accuses them of cowardice. Of course, as I just mentioned a minute ago, a kiss, that was a signal. You might say, why is that? Well, it's the classic illustration of betrayal, but also let's recognize it was dark. 
If you've ever been to where the Garden of Gethsemane is, you recognize they're coming down into the Kidron Valley. Um, matter of fact, it's quite possible that Jesus sitting there could have even seen the lidded torches as they're coming down, see that they were coming. And so as a result, it's still probably pretty dark there unless it was a moonlit night. So to make sure they get the right person, of course, the kiss demonstrates indeed that they are able to arrest the right person. We have, of course, the classic confrontation here, again, very typical of Matthew. He talks about the fact that uh, here there was um, a disciple who stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest. Um, We actually don't see who that was in Matthew, but we read elsewhere, of course, know it was Peter. And so, again, uh, that is the uh, issue of uh, what was taking place there as well. Um, And he is trying to prevent that. And this Jewish proverb, of course, you know, those who live by the sword die by the sword, is one of those ideas as well. And then we, of course, see that uh, Jesus is explaining, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and that he once again send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And so we see this as all part of the salvation plan because Matthew wants to explain, especially to his Jewish audience and to us as well, that this was intended. Jesus at any point could have stopped this, could have prevented this, but allowed it to take place. And now we see that he arrives in verses 57 and following at the house of Caiaphas. Now, if you've ever actually uh, been to uh, Israel and on a tour and gone to the uh, home of Caiaphas, you recognize they had to march him a pretty good distance. There's some evidence that he may have even been put into a pit. Jesus might have been put into a pit. But here's what's so intriguing about all of this. He arrives, this is at the dead of night, and guess what? There's 71 of the judges of the Sanhedrin that are there. All happened by chance, right? No, not exactly. And so, of course, these are good examples all the way through this of some of the laws that were broken. I'm going to read a little bit more about this from this book, which, again, is just fascinating because what they do in each one of the chapters is a quote from Blackstone's commentary or the uh, current uh, laws in the state of Pennsylvania, since this was done at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And so it really kind of takes a look from even a modern perspective about the number of various laws and principles that were violated in terms of the trial of Jesus. But here, even the Sanhedrin themselves broke their own laws. First of all, a capital trial had to be in daytime. That was not the case. The meeting was held in the high priest's home. No, it should have been in the chambers of the temple. So there's problem number two. Number three, the verdict could only be rendered after an entire day and night had passed. That is part of some of the law code because they did not want to have some kind of rush to judgment, vigilante spirit. So you can see that many of these laws were being broken just in terms of the principles of the Sanhedrin. Two more. Also, trials were forbidden on the Sabbath and during the festivals. We know this is during at least Passover, uh, and it is possible that this could have uh, been associated in one way with that. And then, of course, flogging might have not been illegal, but at the very end, of course, and we see this, uh, the spitting and striking and taunting him were all against Jewish law. So from start to finish, this trial, if you want to call it that, 
Sometimes we call it a kangaroo trial, but I don't like to offend kangaroos with that. But nevertheless, this kangaroo trial uh, is something that does not have any kind of justification, even from the laws of the Sanhedrin. And I'll come back to that in just a minute when we talk about the book. Now, the reason that this is described in some detail by Matthew is, again, he recognizes he, of course, is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Any Jewish reader or hearer would immediately recognize how illegal the whole trial of Jesus was. And so what they're trying to show, if nothing else, is just how corrupt the religious leadership was at the time. And you can see, of course, as I point on the screen here, the priestly aristocracies in a hurry. They recognize we've got to get this done quickly before the followers of Jesus might uh, mount some kind of response. And so they recognize the supporters of Jesus might have actually come. So that hence all this incredible speed at which this was done, which caused them to violate all sorts of principles. Then we start getting into the fact that this trial is not going very well. Because you bring some of these witnesses up there, and they can't really come up with any charge. I mean, some of the charges are, he said, that they destroy the temple and it would raise up in three days. And, and after a while, you can see that the chief priest is having difficulty. So finally, he asks, are you the Messiah? Because that's the question. You have said so and all the rest. And so here the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus comes back, not only saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, but I'm also the Son of Man. Now, to us, that just says, okay, what's that mean? Son of Man was a term which is used by Daniel to actually identify deity. So it was a figure that they understood to be divine. Lest you think they didn't understand it that way, look at the next verse. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? And so this claim not only to be the Messiah, but now to be the son of man, ultimately to be God himself, was considered blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Claiming to be God when you're not. Of course, it's not blasphemy. You claim to be God and you are. And you can see how that led to this reaction. What I thought I would do now is maybe kind of go back and follow the story of three individuals that in one way or another deny Jesus or betray Jesus. We already looked a little bit at Judas, then we're going to look at Peter, then we're going to look at Pilate. And real quickly is a good way to kind of summarize this whole section. And first of all, we see that after Jesus uh, is taken, all the disciples deserted Jesus. They fled. But it does tell us in this particular place that Peter was actually following Jesus. Verse 69 here, you can see he was sitting outside the courtyard. We learn, by the way, from John's gospel that John was also there. So in some respects, how do we know this took place? Well, Peter is there and John is there. And actually, John's gospel explains because he knew the high priest, he was able to be there. But now we are, of course, setting up the betrayal uh, and the denial that takes place. And, of course, the denials are fairly quick. You're familiar with it as well. First, a servant girl uh, sees him. Then another servant girl sees him. And then some bystanders see them. And it's strike one, strike two, strike three, very quickly. And, again, I think this is used by Matthew, if nothing else, to remind the listeners 
that in one way or another, maybe we all at one way or another have betrayed Jesus with our sin. Pastor Graham used a great illustration today. I've heard it before. How many people died on the cross? Not three. Actually, many more. All of us that are believers were in that cross as well. And so, in a sense, we see that even Peter, probably the strongest of the disciples at the time, still denies Christ in a time of persecution. And if nothing else helps us realize that that is something that we need to provide courage for ourselves. In both the accounts of Judas and the crowd before Pilate, I think, issue this really big concern, which was something that was of concern even to this day, but it was certainly in the ancient world, the concern that we might be guilty of shedding innocent blood, something that at the time was taken seriously. Maybe not by the Romans, but certainly by the Jews. And, of course, once Judas realizes that Jesus was condemned, he despairs of that, and now we have this whole story of uh, how Judas throws the uh, silver onto the floor of the temple. It is now blood money, and there is nothing that they're going to do with that. And so we are, we'll see that time and time again you have people wanting to, if you will, wash their hands of the guilt that is taking place. And so Pilate, of course, sees him and eventually tries to convince the crowd, thinks certainly we'll take this notorious criminal, Barabbas, and say, who would you actually allow to go free? Well, of course they're going to let Jesus go free, not Barabbas. And instead they want to crucify Jesus. And so at this point he washes his hands publicly as an outward demonstration that uh, he did not want to take responsibility. But the crowd says that they are quite willing to take responsibility for that as well. And just in, even following some of this is now we get into verse 17, uh, 27, uh, verse 14 and following. You see now Jesus comes before Pilate and he gives no answer. That actually is a fulfillment of another messianic prophecy. And in just a minute, we'll talk about some of these messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And I made these available last week, and I brought a whole bunch more this week. So if you didn't have a chance to get one, um, there will be hopefully enough this time to make sure that you get one. But nevertheless, we see that Pilate knew that he was innocent, that the only reason he's being brought is because of the religious leaders. Uh, he's even more concerned because his wife talks about this fact that she had this kind of prophetic dream about the innocence of Jesus. And yet Pilate, because of the pressure and because of the riot that could break out, actually decides to actually capitulate to the crowd. This is not in the scriptures, but we do know this from Roman history. Pilate survives a number of years after this, but eventually is brought to Rome, and we believe he was probably executed because he was not able to control what was happening in Jerusalem. And eventually, of course, you have such a problem in Jerusalem that you have 70 A.D. in the destruction of Jerusalem. Titus going in there as well. So, of course, he was trying to just... Uh, calm the crowd down so that reports would not make it back to Rome and he would lose his head. We find out later he probably did. And so we can see that whether we look at Judas or Peter or now Pilate, we see that although these three men betrayed Jesus in some way, they all in their heart of hearts knew that he was innocent. Of course, obviously Peter knew he was, but they all played a role in what happened to him. And it was the religious leadership 
who were to blame, and they were the ones behind the event. One of the chapters in this book is all about conspiracy, and uh, we'll come back and talk about, well, who's to blame for this? And I thought it was kind of interesting that James Montgomery Bohr says, not only um, do you have the conspiracy of Caiaphas, in a sense you also have the divine conspiracy, because after all, God allowed his son to die, and Jesus allowed this to happen, even though it was an illegal trial. So let's, if we can, get to some of the last sections before we talk about the book. And that is, we see that Jesus gave his life willingly and suffered and thus fulfilled this prophecy. And so you can see that uh, at one point now we move into, of course, uh, how Jesus is mocked. Pilate delivers him up to be crucified. And now we move to verse 27 in chapter 27. And we see the soldiers mocking Jesus. Some of the films, including The Passion of the Christ and others, Jesus of Nazareth, showed that. And we don't know how brutal it was, but we think it was pretty awful. But here, mocking Jesus, and you can see such a contrast that Matthew's trying to create. Here, Jesus deserved a real crown, but all he got was a crown of thorns. Jesus deserved a throne, but all he got instead was a cross. He deserved maybe a kiss of honor, but all he got was a kiss of betrayal, and he was spit on and mocked. And so there are quite a number of things that are unfolding as Jesus is headed to the cross. One of those is is that we don't read as much about the scourging which we read in the other Gospels. And we realize that Jesus now is so weak he can't carry his cross And so Matthew talks about the fact that here was uh, uh, Simon, who was a Cyrene, uh, who would be kind of where today, present-day Libya is, who actually is forced to carry his cross. This was something that was done sometimes, where a Roman soldier could compel a non-Roman citizen to do anything, maybe even carry a pack. That's where Jesus says, if the Roman soldier compels you to go one mile, go a second mile. And so this is kind of the idea there. But the fact is that just when they're looking around for someone to carry a cross, none of the disciples are there to carry the cross of Jesus. I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, insight that somebody had in one of their commentaries. They had abandoned him now. They had, in some cases, denied him or betrayed him. And so here, um, a separate individual, Simon of Cyrene, who shows up later, according to church tradition, as a believer. So that's an interesting little footnote there as well, carries his cross. And so that brings us into some of these messianic prophecies. And uh, there are a lot that are actually now fulfilled in chapter 27. The first is that we see in Psalm 22 that the soldiers cast lots for his clothes. We also see that it says in Psalm 69 that they gave him sour wine to drink. That would be to uh, alleviate some of the pain. Uh, Psalm 34 says that none of his bones were broken. Um, Then you have uh, Psalm 22 again. They looked on the one whom they pierced. I used that last week when we talked about Zechariah 12. Um, A little bit later we see that, of course, as we mentioned last week in uh, Zechariah 11, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 53, a very familiar passage. He was oppressed, did not open his mouth. Psalm 22, once again, they mocked him. Um, Isaiah 50, they spat on him and shamed him. Here's a couple more. His body was scourged, Isaiah 52. He was brought like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53. 
He was counted among sinners, one on each side, Isaiah 53, and his hands and feet were pierced. A lot of those go back to Psalm 22. If you open up Psalm 22, what is the opening words in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when Jesus says that from the cross, it's almost as if he's saying these prophecies that you see in Psalm 22 now apply to him. They ask why God didn't deliver him. Uh, Psalm 53 prayed that those who killed him and committed his spirit into God's hands. Psalm 31. Quite a lot of messianic prophecies. And again, as I've said, some of this is very useful if you're talking to maybe a Jewish person. Because these were known to be messianic prophecies. These were known to be uh, indications of how you would identify a Messiah. And including one that I include here about the timeline from uh, Daniel that I think are very powerful arguments for the fact that indeed we have Jesus saying, I am indeed the Messiah. And we have all these prophecies written down in the Old Testament literally fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. Now we see that the mocking continues at the cross. In addition to that, the soldiers are walking by. We have the chief priests, we have the scribes, the elders. They're all making all sorts of derisive comments. And, of course, Jesus had already explained that he could have come down from the cross. He could have saved himself, but he did not. And finally, he told his disciples at his arrest that God could have saved him. We looked at that just a minute ago, that he is the son of God. Could have come down from the cost, but he chose not to do so, ultimately because of his great love for us. Um, the passion is something that uh, certainly certain uh, religious denominations have focused on. And certainly we don't want to ignore that. But I'm looking forward to next week to getting Jesus out of the grave and in life and the resurrection. As I said before, his last cry on the cross, uh, Psalm 22, verse 1, crying out in despair, being forsaken by God. And then, of course, all sorts of debate. You can have a great debate in a seminary about what that meant. But I think at least we could all agree that at this moment, maybe the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who had never truly been separated maybe geographically, but never spiritually separated, for that moment were, and indeed took on the sins of the world, and as a result, the separation of being forsaken by God the Father. Powerful. And again, I put down Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. The Apostle Paul talks about that in Second Corinthians 5 and the significance of that. Of course, we also see that as Pastor Graham has been taking us through the Gospel of Romans as well. Then you have a number of miracles that uh, begin to unfold dramatically. Three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. And certainly that, some people have suggested, suggests the three-day plague preceding the sacrifice of the first Passover lamb. Of course, he's now our Passover lamb. In the middle of the day, obviously supernatural. Then Matthew does point out something that would have been very significant to the Jewish people. And that is the curtain in the temple. This curtain was very thick. I've read one commentary where they said that even to uh, tie horses on each end of the uh, curtain could not have torn it apart. So it was something that could not be easily torn, and yet it is torn as well. It would have been impossible for somebody to have torn it. And the veil is what separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. 
And so this was, in a sense, a visual representation of what had separated up until then God's Holy Spirit, which dwelled on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant from the people. Now, through the sacrifice, we have the ability to enter into that most holy place. And I give you Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22, is a very poignant argument by the author of the book of Hebrews about how this tearing of this curtain was very significant to Jewish people. Imagine that the only way you could approach God was once a year, when was that? Yom Kippur, and only one individual, the high priest, could actually enter into that time after the blood had been shed and the sacrifices given. There's stories that are told of when uh, the high priest would enter into it, they would tie a rope on his feet because if by chance they thought that the uh, sacrifice was not acceptable, he would just be struck dead. Uh, just think of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark or <laughs> something like that. And they just literally have to pull him back out. So here, how impossible it would be to approach God. And now the curtain is split. And now for the first time to think about the fact that we can, we take it for granted today, Pray to God, our Father. But nevertheless, that was the illustration that was very poignant, no doubt, to Matthew and to other Jewish people. Okay, well, we have to get Jesus off the cross. We'll do that fairly quickly. You had all 12 that deserted him. So who's going to do this? As usual, it's the women, right? Okay, so it gives us the women. You know, we have a list of some of the women that were involved in this, as well as Joseph of Arimathea. And then we read, not in this, but in John's Gospel, also Nicodemus. Remember when Nicodemus shows up? Well, we haven't seen Nicodemus for a while, but he does show up. He apparently was a private disciple of Jesus. And so as a result, they come and get the body. Joseph of Arimathea takes, make sure that the body is properly buried. And then, of course, we have just the last part here, because the next day, After the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go. Make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So again, they go, they make sure the body is there, they seal it uh, with the stone that's rolled before it. There's a Roman seal placed there, and they set a guard. And uh, in some respects, make sure that now we will enhance the miraculous nature of the resurrection. So I hope that that uh, gives you kind of a quick overview of some of the things that we see in Matthew 26 and 27. But I thought for just a minute, what I might do is take a little bit from this book, uh, Jesus on Trial. And again, I recommend it to you because it has been something that might be very useful if you have somebody that has a legal background, maybe even trying to witness to them. And he talks about a number of issues. First of all, in the chapter on conspiracy, as I mentioned just a minute ago, he says that certainly there was the conspiracy of Caiaphas and the high priest. But he says the strangest thing of all is that God himself was in on the conspiracy God not only allowed Jesus to be put on trial, but also planned for him to be crucified. 
God knew that it was only through the atoning death of Jesus that sinners could find forgiveness and receive eternal life. Call it a divine conspiracy, a holy God conspiring to save guilty humanity. And so he goes into some detail about that. But then we see also, of course, the arrest that takes place, the resistance, of course, with Peter, and then coming into the witnesses. And it's kind of interesting because under the witnesses, they said in here, there are many illegalities in Christ's trial, among them the arrest and trial by night, the use of a traitor to identify and secure Jesus, the absence of any formal charge, the rushed one-day duration of the uh, trial, the intervention of the high priest in the proceedings, the lack of a defense, and the unjustified verdict. And so this one goes into uh, some of those particular issues, and they even quote from Black's Law Dictionary, in general, one who has been present personally sees or perceives the thing, a beholder, spectator, eyewitness, one who testifies to what he has seen, heard, or otherwise observed. Uh, they constantly go back and talk about some of the various rules that we use even to this day in terms of a trial. They go on to talk about the fact that the testimony, and I thought this was very good, because in Jewish law, this was written down in what is called the Mishnah. That may be more than you want to know, but you know you have all sorts of different things. And the Mishnah actually had three different categories of testimony. The first is vain testimony. That referred to accusations that were irrelevant or worthless or could be eliminated at once. Those would be the kind of things that sometimes show up on social media. You know what I'm talking about there? So that would be vain testimony. Number two is standing testimony. Standing testimony was testimony that had some relevance to the case and was permitted to stand until it was either confirmed or disproved. And then the final was adequate testimony, which was relevant testimony in which two or more witnesses agree. Only testimony in this third category was sufficient to convict. And you see that as we go read through even Matthew 27, but on Matthew 26, but if you also read in Mark, Luke, and John, the witnesses contradicted each other. And if you've ever been in a court of law, and I've been on a couple of juries now, one time I was a jury foreman, how that happened, I never figured that out. I've also been eliminated from a lot of jury pools by the five, as soon as I figure out who I am. But nevertheless, you recognize that when you get contrary information, you begin to have the conviction that somebody's wrong. Maybe both are not uh, accurate. And so, again, this is where this idea of adequate testimony was simply not used in this case. Let's go on from the witnesses to the verdict. And, again, as they point out, Jesus was actually put on trial not once but twice. The Jewish trial, which was an ecclesiastical trial, was held in the middle of the same night that Jesus was betrayed. They said, as we have seen, that trial ended with a high priest convicting him of blasphemy, which was a capital offense. The second trial, which was a civil trial, began at daybreak. As soon as it was light, the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin had bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. We find that in Matthew, actually in the book of Mark. And the Roman trial was necessary because the Jews did not have the authority to execute the death penalty. Before the Romans took over, yes, you could actually put someone to death through a stoning. 
You might say, well, later on they did that with Stephen. Yeah, well, they did that essentially illegally. And so if they wanted to kill someone, they had to have the Roman permission to do so. And so that's why they had to go from just an ecclesiastical trial to a civil trial. And then finally, we get to the sentence and to the execution. And I thought it was interesting because here's they talk about Matthew's account in which these miracles actually show up. And according to them, there were at least four miracles that Matthew describes. Number one, the darkening of the sky between noon and three o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus was on the cross. Number two, the tearing of the veil of the temple from top to bottom when Jesus died. Number three, the earthquake that opened many of the tombs near the place of the crucifixion. And number four, of course, the resurrection to life of many holy people that had died. Of course, we skipped over some of that, but there are just some great illustrations in this book. And um, it's easy to get. Not only is it uh, paperback, but also in Kindle. And if you're looking for something to uh, give to one of your skeptical legal friends, maybe one of your lawyer friends, uh, this might be a book that would get them interested. Uh, There is a classic story of a man by the name of Frank Morrison who actually set forth to disprove the resurrection. But because he had a legal background, first spent time looking at the trial of Jesus and surfaced all of these problems with the trial. But then eventually, as he studied the resurrection, became a Christian. And as a result, wrote a very famous book, almost a century ago now, in terms of the testimony of the trial and resurrection of Jesus. And fascinating book as well, and something that they refer to as well. So anyway, this book um, you can probably find in your local bookstore, although it's been out for a while. Maybe it'd be easier to get on Amazon or something like that. And most importantly, uh, before I turn it back over to uh, Fred, uh, we have additional copies today of uh, my booklet on a biblical view on Messianic prophecies. Don't forget, we need to finish in just a couple of minutes here, and then we'll make uh, room for the funeral to take place. But let's turn it back over to Fred.